We turn now to our scripture lesson for this evening's sermon as we continue covering those uh, topics which are covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 and we'll read verses 1 through 11 here. This is the Word of God. As we consider this scripture, it will part of this scripture lesson here will will be one of the proof texts for what uh, what we think about this evening in terms of Christ as mediator as we continue with that topic from last week. So I call upon you to attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word for this was given to the apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit as he wrote to the church at Philippi. So this is God's very word. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And thus ends the reading of this passage of Scripture for us at this time. May the Lord bless it and the reading of other Scriptures this evening as we consider uh, this topic of Christ the Mediator. Let's uh, briefly pray again. Lord, we do thank you that we have such a mediator as Christ Jesus, and as we pick up with that topic again this evening and flesh it out a little more, we pray that we would rejoice in having one who is both God and man to mediate between us, that we might indeed serve you with confidence that we have been reconciled to our Holy Creator by the only one who could accomplish such a reconciliation, by Jesus Christ himself, as we pray in his name. So we ask that you would indeed open our minds and our hearts, that we might hear your word and apply it well to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sabbath, we looked at the first part of how the Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes the teachings of Scripture about Christ in his role, his office, as mediator, as king and head of the church in particular. And uh, the we saw that the person of the Trinity, who is known as the Son or the Word, uh, took upon himself, we just read about this again in Philippians 2 here, that he took upon himself a human nature, As we saw just now, he considered his equality with God not to be robbery, 
right? That is, it was not something inappropriate that he is equal with God. He is a member, or rather a person, of the eternal Godhead. I just slipped and uh, committed one of my pet peeves, where we sometimes people will talk about members of the Trinity, which actually is inappropriate language, because a member is a body part, and God is not made up of different parts, but rather the persons of the Godhead, each one, are fully God. They possess all of the essence of God's nature. But that this person of the Trinity here took upon himself human nature. He, uh, he did not consider it to be robbery, to be equal with God. He was and always is equal with God, for he is God from eternity. But he took on a human nature and made himself of no repute, of no reputation, as Paul says here. He took the form of a bondservant. And the, the words for form and appearance there uh, in Philippians 2 are, are showing both that he uh, looked like a man and literally had the nature of a man. The form means he, he took on the full nature. To put it in the words that John uses in John chapter 1, He was made flesh. He had the actual human nature. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, we saw last time in the womb of the Virgin Mary, having a a full and complete human nature, subject to our weaknesses, our limitations, our needs, and even our temptations, yet without sin. So again, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, John says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Luke 1.35, the angel answered Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called called Holy, the Son of God. And so he was and is fully God and fully human, or truly God and truly human. Two natures in one person forever. As such, he was holy, harmless, and undefiled, we heard last week from the confession, and, and lived a perfectly righteous life in our place being both God and human, possessing the fullness of both of those natures, he could mediate between the two. He could mediate between God and mankind. As we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for example, we see there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 5. Well, the confession goes on from teaching us those things to, to say, also, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law. We just read about that in Philippians. And did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. So not only did he suffer in his body, that's what you would have seen if you had been there to view his suffering and his crucifixion. But he also felt the torments of his soul 
And we see that in his words as he quotes Psalm 22, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the confession says, Was crucified and died, was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. So that's the fulfillment of Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. On the third day he rose from the dead, the confession says, with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Now these concepts should sound pretty familiar to all of us, and if you've ever learned the the Apostles' Creed, for example. uh, All these things, these concepts are contained in that creed. He suffered. Hebrews 5.8, although he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In context, that's not saying Jesus uh, did wrong and had to be corrected, uh, but that he made the choice consciously to obey God, even though it meant he would suffer. 1 Peter 4.1 is premised on the words, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ indeed suffered. He died the cursed death of a cross. Isaiah 53, 12, He poured out His soul to death. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was buried. Isaiah 53, 9 predicts His death with sinners which is indeed what happened, and his burial in the tomb of a rich man as he was laid to rest in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea had prepared. Luke 23, and verses 50 through 53 point out the fulfillment of Isaiah's words. He was exalted then afterwards, though. That's what we read about in Philippians 2, what we read just this evening. That after humbling himself, and after... Uh, taking on human nature and dying and going even to that humiliating death of the cross, which showed him to be cursed by God while he went under that death. He rose afterwards. For being actually holy and undefiled himself, death could not hold him. He rose from death and ascended into heaven, so his uh, name is to be exalted above every name. God gave him the name which is above every name. So his exaltation consists of his rising from the dead. Psalm 16.10 You will not abandon my soul to the grave or to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter points out that David cannot have been talking about himself. David's tomb is here. David saw corruption. David rotted in the tomb, as it were. But Jesus did not. Jesus rose from the dead. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, as the ESV puts it. So his exaltation consists of his rising from the dead. It also consists of his ascension into heaven, Acts 1.9, as they were looking on, the disciples, that is, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
John 20, verse 17, Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And also his exaltation consists of his session, his seating at the right hand of the Father. 1 Peter 3.22 speaks of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. In Ephesians 2.6, he is seated in the heavenly places. And indeed, because of our union with him, Paul says there that we are with him in the heavenly places. And also his exaltation will be seen in his return to judge the world. Acts 1 verse 11, this Jesus, the angel says to the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you in, into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what did all this accomplish that the confession has mentioned there? What was the purpose of his humiliation, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation? Ultimately, of course, it's the glory of God. The confession also says this, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, though the, or rather, he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. God's justice demanded punishment for sin. God does not, as theologians often say, wink at sin. He doesn't look at our sins and say, well, that's okay, I'll just overlook that. He wouldn't be just if he did that. He has to punish it. And so if we're not going to bear the punishment for our sins by being cast away from all but God's wrath, knowing only God's wrath and nothing else of his presence, nothing of his mercy or his glory or his love, if we're to escape that, then we have to have a perfect substitute. Christ has taken that. Jesus bore our punishment for us and thereby purchased our reconciliation to God. He purchased us out from under the judgment of God. That's why he's called our Redeemer. A Redeemer purchases you out from slavery or out from under some debt. We owe God a debt for our sins, and Jesus has purchased us out from under that. And not only did he buy us out from under God's justice, God's wrath as as we see there in the confession, the confession rightly says, he also purchased for us a place in his everlasting kingdom. What a wonder Christ has done this. Now often, this brings up the question, many have asked, and I've had this question many times in my ministry as a, as a minister of the gospel, or as I've taken up this portion of Christ's ministry, I should really say, what about people who lived before Jesus came? That one often comes along, not quite as often as what about people who never got to hear the gospel uh, even since Jesus has come, but, but this is one. What about people who lived before Jesus came? Could they be saved? And if so, how? If it took Jesus' work to purchase people out from under sin, well, what 
good then did it do Abraham to worship God, for example? Well, the confession actually points out that uh, the scripture answers these questions and uh, rightly says to us, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed. So Christ was revealed in promises from God in the past, and then in the types and shadows of the Old Testament, in the sacrifices and the sacrificial system in general. And insofar as Christ was revealed in those things, not with the clarity that you and I have since he has come into the world, but insofar as he was revealed in those things, uh, a, a saint before Christ's coming could look to those things and know that there would be a Savior and put their trust in God and in his promises to be fulfilled by that Savior. And so they were thus saved. So the confession says, the benefits thereof of his sacrifice were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world being yesterday and today the same and forever. So what that's saying is that people in all ages are saved the same way. If somebody is saved before Christ came into the world, they're saved in the same way that you and I are saved since Christ has come into the world. By God's grace, working through faith in the fulfillment of his promises. You and I, in particular, put faith in that person, Jesus Christ. They would not have known, oh, Jesus of Nazareth will do this. But David knew he would have a son who would do this. Abraham knew he would have a seed who would do this. Eve knew she would have a seed who would crush the serpent's head. You and I know it was Jesus of Nazareth. And so while they didn't have as full a revelation as we have, Abraham and David and Isaiah and, and all of the saints in the Old Testament were all saved through faith in Jesus Christ, just like you and I are. Furthermore, the confession says, Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures. Remember, he has two natures. He's both God and he's man, and he acts according to both of those natures. By each nature, doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Think of, of Paul in Acts 20 telling the Ephesian elders that, that God shed his blood for their, for their salvation. Well, God doesn't have blood in his nature as God. That's part of Jesus' human nature. So there's, by the way, been a, a weird aberrant doctrine that has sprung up now and again, people will say that Jesus was human, but he had God blood in him because of that. And Well, no, if he had something other than human blood in his body, then he wasn't fully human, and that breaks down the whole understanding of him being our mediator because he's fully and truly human and fully and truly God. But it's just a, a way in which the scripture sometimes speaks of the person so closely that it uh, doesn't really matter whether you're saying God or the man did it, because the person of Christ has both natures. So all this means is while it's, 
It's plain from Scripture that Christ has these two natures, divine and human, in one person. It's uh, sometimes uh, hard for us to tell which of the two is acting in what way in a particular act. Some of them are quite easy. When Jesus died on a cross, God didn't die. God can't die. But God, as a man, died. So, the man, Christ Jesus, died for the sins of his people. So everything Christ does, he does as both God and man, yet the two natures act differently in each situation. God doesn't get tired, God can't die, so when Jesus got tired, when he was thirsty, when he died, it wasn't his divine nature that grew hungry or thirsty or weary, or that died, it was his human nature. As God, he knows all things, but as a human being, he has a limited mind. And so he could tell his disciples that the timing of of the destruction of Jerusalem that he speaks of in Mark 13, was not known to the Son, but only to the Father. But it's always Christ doing those things. Which is what puts him alone in the position to mediate between us and our God. Because he's the only one who's both. So the confession finishes its chapter on this topic, saying, To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. So he purchases redemption, and then he carries out applying it and communicating it to you. Making intercession for them, and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. That is, he uses lots of means to bring us to these things which he has promised. Jesus dies for sinners and doesn't let it leave it up to chance, so to speak. He makes sure that the people for whom he died get saved. That summarizes his mediatorial office. We'll talk more in the future about his being prophet, priest, and king. But uh, that threefold office is summarized in his being the mediator. As mediator, he purchased our redemption. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works and on and on and on. You can find lots and lots more scriptures that tell us that same thing. And Jesus purchases that redemption and he also then applies that redemption to his elect by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 He saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians 2.12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Because the Holy Spirit does this to us and for us, it is actually irresistible. This is why we call it irresistible grace. God does not do half works. Right? He, he does perfect works. And as mediator, Christ reigns on behalf of his church. This is why we call his kingship, not just kingship by itself, but we call it the mediatorial kingship of Christ. Yes, Christ has an absolute kingship as God, but as a man who has perfectly fulfilled all of God's commands to him, never sinned, and then gone through with his mission to die for sinners after living a perfectly righteous life, he can mediate between God and man and reigns now. He's been given, as we saw in Philippians 2, that name which is above every name. And as it, we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says of God, and he put all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. It's an interesting construction of a sentence, and it's constructed that way, of course, not by accident, but on purpose. Because God here puts all things under Christ's feet. And we see that as a fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. And God is, there's already things are under Christ's feet. He has all authority and not yet in the sense of every knee yet bowing fully to Christ. And so we're told, or God tells Christ in Psalm 110.1, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. He put all things under his feet and then gave him to be head over all things. So he's, he is head over all things, makes him his head over all things, and gives him who is head over all things to the church. That's Christ's mediatorial kingship. Christ doesn't just reign as God over all things, but as God's anointed king, he reigns over all things on behalf of the church. As mediator, he's reigning over all things. What a gift God has given to the church in Christ, not only purchasing our redemption in him, but reigning over all things for our benefit in him. We'll get more into the details, Lord willing, in sermons to come on Christ's threefold office. But we do note here, and actually I'll do king first in that series, but as king he subdues, governs us, but also subdues and governs all of our enemies and restrains them and brings them under his feet. As prophet he reveals God's plan. As priest he purchases redemption for us, He makes himself a sacrifice and then intercedes for us as well in an ongoing manner. But here we see what a great mediator we have in Christ Jesus. He is the only one who could mediate between God and man because he's the only one who is both. And he is a mediatorial king. He is reigning on our behalf. What a blessing from God we have in Him. So trust in Him. Glorify Him for the fact that He reigns on your behalf. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that we have such a mediator as Christ Jesus, that as such he has purchased our redemption from sin and from death, out from under your wrath and the right punishment for it. We thank you that he reigns even now on our behalf. May we ever live thankful lives, glorifying Christ for what he has done, seeking to be more like him and to serve him well, because he is our king. And we pray this in his name. Amen.